Hello, hello and welcome back to the third episode of Radio Nuclear, the podcast all about the science behind our natural and medical world. We focus on the biology, chemistry and engineering, both physical and digital, that has shaped the world in which we know. Now I know that last episode I said that this episode will be on the topic of cancer, but due to current events I thought that this episode's content is both topical and necessary. And don't worry, the episode on cancer is coming very, very soon with some uh, extremely special guests coming on. Today's episode is on the importance of science communication in the current atmosphere, with relation to critical thinking, seeking of good research, and being selective of sources from which these articles or news stories are written from. Now, the reason I started this podcast was because I believe that science communication has fallen out of general conversation. The scientific community is quite inward-looking sometimes, Despite the amazing impact their work can have, some are often guilty of not looking out and seeing how their work has has infiltrated or hasn't infiltrated into general knowledge. Now, for the most part, science can be too complicated or too niche for the public to worry about. But it's at times like these of worldwide crisis that we realise how important, clear and understandable science is. Our world is so consumed by business, economics and politics that science and engineering are often overlooked, when in fact these fields have as much, if not more, influence on our day-to-day lives than most give credit for. The mobile phone in your pocket, for example, that you're probably listening to to me now on, it's just there. You don't need to know how it works, but isn't it a curious thing when you stop and think about it? And thinking is a great thing. Analyzing is a gift. The fact that our brains can invent, decipher, communicate, and all the rest of it is simply a miracle. Not that I'm a a God-fearing individual at all. But it's this curiosity that I hope that people rediscover. We all had it as children, so why have we lost sight of it? Why do we accept the facts on the news, whether it be scientific or details of a crisis abroad, or even the Black Lives Matter protest, for example? News corporations unfortunately control the version of the truth that they wish to present, so we, as citizens, need to be proactive in seeking the real truth from first-hand sources. In the case of science, this can often be difficult, as scientific research Articles can be hidden behind a paywall with more accessible versions of the paper, what we would call a lay summary not being provided. With regard to the coronavirus pandemic, I've seen a vast amount of theories which can most definitely be described as nothing less than nonsensical brain farts. When looking at these theories, ask yourself, who's made this post or video? Why have they done this? And is it really credible? If you're unsure about any of these things, ask. Send me and my colleagues a question on our social media, tag us in things you want clarification on, or send us conspiracy theories that you can't believe are real, because they're probably not. I came a couple on Twitter a week or or so ago, and I couldn't believe that they actually existed. And I'll go into one of them uh, a little later on, as I've become somewhat sidetracked. Now, I'm lucky to be in a position where I have the support of an amazing public engagement team as part of the Smart Medical Imaging CDT at King's and Imperial Colleges London. These brilliant individuals help us translate the science that we do into engaging displays, media content like this one, and art projects like the one that is currently being displayed online called Science X Art. This project uses real scientific data and images in artistic ways, a result of the collaboration of the CDT that I'm part of and the Royal College of Art. The link to this work will be in the description of this podcast, so please go and check it out. It's really, really cool stuff. The point of this podcast is therefore to try and answer some of the questions that the public have about science. 
and it's why this podcast relies so heavily on the questions that you, the listener, sends in. My initial motivation to start a podcast, rather than any other form of public engagement, was that I thought it would be the best way to get a bit of science into everyone's week. I'm a huge advocate of podcasts. In my usual commute to London, which lasts about an hour, I listen to a podcast or two on almost every journey into and on my way home from work. Many of the people around me, I'm sure, are doing exactly the same. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if I can squeeze in 20 to 40 minutes a week of science that people out there could know a little more about the world around them and get a bit of that curiosity back into their lives? Another factor was that a lot of my friends don't engage in science anymore. During school, most lost a lot of interest in the subject because of boring teachers or a boring subject matter. Yet, when I explain my research, I always get the response, oh, that's pretty cool. And science is cool, as much as people try and say otherwise. These friends of mine are great, and I love them, but too often we've been sat at the pub and conversation drifts to politics, history or war. Now, I am interested in these topics, don't get me wrong, but I was desperate to add science into the mix, and starting this podcast has really helped me in doing that. We can now talk about all of our interests, which is absolutely brilliant. It's also opened avenues for conversation about the relationship of science and politics, which is important now more than ever. The coronavirus has exhibited some of the very best and worst of science communication. I'm sure we all got sick to death of graphs and death tolls during the height of the pandemic. These representations of data are of course crucial, but like any images, can be manipulated to present data in the best way. The graphs for things like total cases most commonly used a logarithmic scale on the y-axis. That's the left-hand one. This scale means that each rung on the axis is a fold change, i.e. it goes from 1 to 10, 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000, and then to 10,000. This means that although a straight line looks like the rate of increase is steady, in actuality the rate of growth is rapidly increasing. If the line is straight, going from the bottom left corner up to the top right corner, that means that the time it took for cases to go from 10 to 100 is the same as it took to go from 100 to 1,000 and then from 1,000 to 10,000. The choosing of which scale to use is, was also a tactical, uh, tactical approach, as using a really steep curve is scary to those who don't know how to read graphs. And it would have caused immense panic among the populations, which obviously governments don't want. So you see, even as something as minute as this, science communication is at play if only in the background. Now I hope you'll realise that I've signposted to some good science communication at the start of this episode, and we'll delve into some not so great examples as we go through, and also tell you of my concerns if science is not well understood by our population. The coronavirus pandemic has thrown up some quite remarkable conspiracy theories, most coming via Facebook, WhatsApp or Twitter. The most prominent one was the installation of 5G towers in communities was what was allowing the coronavirus to infect you. This theory was spouted by David Icke, a well-known conspiracy theorist who's most well-known for his theory that the world is run by lizard people. And I hope that gives you some insight into this man's scientific prowess. One of the videos I saw on Twitter was on this very matter. And I've, and I've touched on radioactivity, so I thought it would be an interesting place to start on this now. Now, radioactivity isn't directly involved, but rather radio waves, which are on the electromagnetic spectrum, and is what we use to communicate via mobile devices. The theory suggests that radio waves from these 5G masts, that are millimetre waves, enter into the nuclei of our cells, which is where our DNA is. This is my first point of contention. Our cells are less than a millimetre in diameter, so the idea that radio waves penetrate small gaps in our cells is absolute rubbish. 
Radio waves will indeed interact with our, with our cellular matter, but the idea that they're like missiles or the ionizing radiation we've discussed previously is just plainly wrong. The second problem with this theory is that they say that the radio waves cause DNA in its supercoiled state to act like an electromagnet. And DNA does exist in supercoils. Think of it as hair wrapped around hair curlers, getting nice and tight, but when the hair is released or the DNA uh, is released, it's still curled, but a lot less so, so it enables it to be worked with or manipulated. Now, these people, I'll refrain from calling them anything else for now, say that the DNA gets released from the supercoil because of the radio waves and causes the matter of our nucleus, the nucleoplasm, to have huge voids which get filled with new bits of DNA sequence, which is what the coronavirus test is recognising. And there are so many faults here, I don't really know where to start. Firstly, DNA supercores are really strong structures, and radio waves are not sufficient to break them in the manner which these people are suggesting. Secondly, the nucleus is mostly void. Most of our body is empty space. Well, water-based space. But still, there's a lot of space in our cells. Thirdly, the coronavirus tests are for the antigens, which are proteins which are on the surface of the virus body, called a virion, or released into our body systems. The test does not test for DNA, and besides, the genetic code, per se, of the coronavirus is RNA, not DNA. Now, DNA does get made into RNA, but even still, these people are just way, way off. To the makers of the video's credit, the production quality is high, and the scientific language is complex enough to confuse those that don't know what they're looking at. But this is exactly where the harm fake news, to buy into the term, can have. This video has almost 4,000 views on Twitter. Now, I know this isn't loads, but there are people out there that actually believe this nonsense. Now, I quite like debunking these theories, but the fact that they get any traction at all is incredibly, incredibly scary. It's this sort of stuff that motivates me and should motivate my colleagues in tackling this misinformation as it can have extraordinary effects. The video even acknowledges that YouTube and other news outlets have removed theories involving 5G, claiming that they're trying to silence the truth. In reality, these outlets are silencing harmful conspiracy theories that could lead to more and more deaths. So please, if anyone brings up 5G in connection with the coronavirus with you, kindly correct them or direct them to these last few minutes of audio and I'm happy to tell them myself. The other debate that's been thrown up in recent weeks is that of wearing face masks. Fortunately, in the UK, the wearing of face masks has been enforced in shops and other enclosed public spaces and, on the whole, has not faced huge backlash unlike our cousins across the pond, who seem to take great issue with protecting their own and their neighbours' health. The most pressing question in the UK has been why it's taken so long to enforce these regulations. And indeed, that is an interesting question. There's been good scientific evidence for the usefulness of face masks for reducing the spread of particulates released during an exhalation, so the argument that they make no real difference was a confusing stance taken by both the UK and US governments. All I can really think was that this ruling could have been pushed to make many rebel against law and order early in the stage of the pandemic, which would have worsened the effect of the disease. If there was a strong relationship between scientists, governments and the public prior to these events, it's likely that face marks would have been introduced way early into the lockdown, if not prior to it. This is a quick interjection. I've recorded most of my podcast and was in the process of editing it when I went on a trip into St Thomas's Hospital in central London, where my lab is based. And to get there, I went on the tube for the first time since probably early March, and it was an eye-opening experience. Although face coverings have been mandatory for all those travelling on the London Underground, 
unless there is a leg legitimate medical reason for not wearing one. I saw so many people incorrectly wearing their masks. And I don't know whether this is, um, this is common wherever everyone, anyone else is, but it was, it was quite eye-opening for me because I've been tucked away in a little corner of Kent for um, well, the last four months and most people seem to be wearing their masks properly. Um, but most people I saw on the tube today were wearing their masks under their nose. And I don't want to be too critical of these people because there must be something in the message of wearing masks that clearly wasn't evident to them. But to me, the instruction to wear one over both the mouth and the nose seems pretty obvious. It's on all of the signage that indicates to wearing them that way. But maybe we're being presumptuous as to people's understanding of how masks work. It raises the question, if something as simple as wearing a piece of material over one's face to protect the health of themselves and others isn't being followed, then how can we hope for us to get rid of COVID-19 anytime soon? After that little afterthought, whilst editing, I'll hand back to normal proceedings. The wearing of face masks should potentially have been worn by instinct, as here is an example where history and common sense should come into effect. In 1918, the world faced another pandemic, the H1N1 influenza pandemic, otherwise known as the Spanish flu. This pandemic infected 500 million people worldwide, and at the time of recording, the coronavirus has been reported to have around 19 million cases, with 10 million recovering from the disease. This figure is quite remarkable given that the coronavirus is an incredibly infectious pathogen, that being an agent such as a bacteria or virus that can cause disease. In the modern age, with international travel, it is credit to the epidemiologists who advise nations to go into lockdown early, limiting the spread of the disease. Compared to almost a century ago, or just over a century ago rather, it's quite brilliant how far the understanding of disease has come. What is frustrating, however, particularly as a Brit, is to see how slow the UK and the US governments have been to react. So many lives have been lost so unnecessarily. And as we come out of the lockdown, we should still remember the devastation that the first wave of coronavirus has had. And I say the first wave as there will undoubtedly be a second one, which will hopefully have far less of an impact. Of course, a lot was unknown about the coronavirus when the world was first made aware of it at the turn of the decade. And with such little information available, it was difficult to predict the effects that would ensue. However, in these unknown times, it is of critical importance to us to trust as a society in those that have spent their lives understanding disease. There was a lot of criticism a few years ago in the UK of economic experts who had advised against Brexit. Now, I'm no economist and will abstain from giving my views on this event. But as a 23 year old, you can probably predict my voting record pretty well. But many don't take this choice to abstain from weighing in on big topics. I always find it funny when I see armchair experts calling out a professor for being wrong. And there are so many of these people out there. It's actually quite scary. I'm all for people doing their own research and having constructive academic debate. But as with all opinions, they should have some basis in fact. Too often, opinions on social media are absent from truth. And that does nobody any good. Potentially the biggest contributor to the at-home expert is the current president of the United States, Mr. Trump. He has managed to market himself as a genius, which I guess in some way he is, as people hang on every word he says and take it as gospel truth sometimes. During this last year, Trump has claimed that he has a natural ability for medical science. His uncle was a professor at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, probably one of the best schools for science and engineering in the world. Trump may believe he shares some of these super genius genes. However, as we've seen, that isn't quite the case. The story of John Trump, his uncle, is actually quite a fascinating one. 
He was indeed a brilliant scientist and engineer, and worked on the early radiotherapy of cancer, among other diseases. Upon reading more about him, I can quite believe, I can't quite believe, sorry, that the two are related. John Trump was a pioneer in the development of X-ray imaging and therapy, and did early work on the use of strontium-90, a beta particle emitting radionuclide, for the treatment of cancer. Maybe it was this genius that Donald was channeling when he suggested injecting bleach or getting ultraviolet wavelengths of light inside the body to treat coronavirus. In case it needs to be saying, neither of these methods are sensible. I know 2020 hasn't been the typical year, but the fact that arguably the most influential and powerful man on the planet is getting such fundamental and crucial science wrong is absolutely crazy. So in case you haven't guessed already, the answer to the title of this podcast is no, President Trump is not a scientific genius. Shock. Trump has had a knack at silencing sensible voices and listening to the loudest in the room. This form of filtering information is dangerous anywhere, let alone inside the Oval Office. Trump isn't the first to be guilty of it. It's an issue that affects meeting rooms all around the world and is one of the reasons why bull-headed men have ended up at the top of companies. Selection of information like this is dangerous. This brings us onto our Shoulders of Giants section for today's podcast. I put out a picture of the man we're going to be discussing today on our social media, and a few of you out there got it bang on. Today's giant is Lewis Howard Latimer, an American inventor born in Chelsea, Massachusetts in 1848. Latimer was the youngest of four children, son to George Latimer, who escaped slavery in Virginia to start a new free life in Massachusetts. His escape wasn't so easy, however. He was met with a lot of opposition, becoming one of the many cases in the abolition of slavery. Latimer remained a citizen of Massachusetts after funds were raised to pay off Mr. Gray with the healthy sum of $400. Lewis Howard Latimer, the topic of today's Shoulder of Giants, joined the Navy in the US at the age of 15, but only served for two years, receiving an honorable discharge. He swiftly became an office boy for which he was paid $3 per week. However, after a little time in the office, which was a patent law firm, his employers noticed his ability to draw exquisite sketches for patent designs. By 1972, Lewis Howard Latimer was promoted to head draftsman, bumping his salary from $3 a week to $20 per week. Latimer soon became a well-known and well-respected individual in the time. With the invention of machines and automation, and with the adoption of electrical power into appliances, the world rapidly saw brand new ideas popping up and needing proper protection. In 1874, Latimer co-patented a new toilet system which was then installed in railroad cars. Another two years later, Latimer was employed by Alexander Graham Bell to help patent Bell's telephone. In 1879, Latimer relocated to, with his family to Connecticut, where he had other relatives. It was here that Latimer began his most famous work. He was employed as assistant manager and chief draftsman at the US Electrical Lighting Company which was the rival company to Edison Electric Light Company. Now, you may have already guessed what happens next, but on we go. Thomas Edison, as you probably all know, invented the light bulb. Well, that's not the whole truth. You see, Edison created the first light bulb, but with a paper filament. This paper filament was next to useless, burning out any time electricity was run through it. In 1881, Latimer invented and patented the carbon filament, which allowed a continuous glow of light. Later that year, he sold the patent to Edison's company, but being the savvy businessman and using his experience in the patent office to good use, Latimer filed for another patent in 1882 for the process of manufacturing carbons, as it was called. This new and improved method, method for making carbon filaments was extremely useful and led Latimer to being employed by Edison in 1884. 
In his time there, Latimer was witness to a lot of advances. Following the writing of his book, Incandescent Electric Lighting, the first book about how the light bulb works, and Latimer was party to the installation of electric lighting in New York, Philadelphia, Montreal, and right here in London. The Edison Light Company soon merged with Thomas Houston Electric Company, and General Electric was born, which is now one of the biggest suppliers of lab equipment in the world. Despite Latimer's pioneering work on the light bulb, he is still not credited with his invention. Edison is still synonymous with the light bulb, even though the light bulb wouldn't be as we know it today if it weren't for Lewis Howard Latimer. Fortunately, Latimer's name lives on, as he was an inductee at the National Inventors Hall of Fame in America, and an invention program at MIT, the university I mentioned earlier, was named after him. Of course, it's important to remember these names and great people, even as something as everyday and as humble as the light bulb was thanks to an incredible man who has been written out of his own invention's history. So next time you switch on a light bulb or have a light bulb moment, remember you've got Lewis Howard Latimer to thank. I hope you realise how prevalent the writing out of people of colour has been in our world. I, for one, was guilty of crediting Edison for the invention of the modern light bulb. It was something I was taught at school. But this story just goes to show how important it is to do your own research and talk about whatever you find. Create a discussion. We're in an age where we're more connected than ever, but oftentimes feels like we're more distant, only exposing ourselves to what we want to hear, not what we need to. I've tried doing it, and as much as it annoys me to see some of the conspiracy theories, it's important to address these fallacies. Even at the time of recording this episode, I've just seen the gift that keeps on giving Donald Trump misinterpret coronavirus data. Again, I'll retweet the clip on Twitter so you can go and see it. The second major issue that has arisen in the coronavirus pandemic is the issue of the vaccine, or lack thereof, at the time of recording. I'm sure that there will be one, if not multiple vaccines, against SARS-CoV-2, the virus which causes COVID-19, in the coming months. There's been unprecedented work from amazing institutions all around the world to produce a vaccine. In the UK, we have Oxford University leading the way, but University College London and my university, King's College London, doing extraordinary work. Clinical trials are also being accelerated faster than any other in recorded history. And although we're very much in the early stages of treating this disease, we have many people already saying that they won't get the vaccine. Now, we don't know yet how it will work or how effective it will be, particularly in the long term, as evidence from King's College has shown that the lifetime of antibodies in our body which protect us from the coronavirus are limited with peak concentrations at three weeks following the presentation of symptoms, but declined after that. The severity of the infection is also linked with the number of antibodies produced. The worse the infection, the greater the number of antibodies produced. These findings all contribute to some trepidation, but it appears that a vaccine may be our only way out of the pandemic. It is only by having a large majority of our population protected against the virus that we can hope for herd immunity, a phrase which has been bounced around a lot, particularly here in the UK. For those that don't know, herd immunity is the term used for the theory that if a large percentage of a population are immune to an infectious agent, then the rest of the population who aren't immune are protected, as the prevalence of the infectious agent in the general population is so low that their risk is minimal. This only works if we can get a high percentage vaccinated. A recent poll conducted in the United States suggests that only 50% of people are happy to get a vaccine when it becomes available. This isn't high enough for herd immunity. In Europe, these figures are slightly higher, with around two-thirds saying they get it in the UK and 75% of people saying they get it in France. These are far more favourable numbers, and if the vaccine is shown to be effective, it is likely that these numbers would increase to a point where herd immunity comes into effect. The current estimation is that 70% of the population will be needed to be uh, vaccinated for herd immunity to come into effect. However, this number is still largely predictive work at the moment. 
The topic of vaccines is still somewhat controversial. The MMR vaccine against measles, mumps and rubella is perhaps the most famous for resistance to its use. People have theorised that the vaccine is linked to autism onset in young children. However, no statistical evidence has ever supported this theory. In the UK, vaccines aren't mandatory, unlike places like Australia, where I believe that the child support from the government is not paid to families who refuse to vaccinate their children. The MMR vaccine has been largely effective in the UK, with mumps and rubella pretty much eradicated from our population. However, measles is very infectious, with vaccination of about 96% of the population required for herd immunity. At the peak of the theories linking the MMR jab to autism onset, the UK saw a decline of MMR vaccination and a coinciding increase in measles, leading to the UK losing its measles-free status from the World Health Organization in 2019, as only 86% of children received both sets of their vaccine jabs in the years prior to its re-emergence. Fortunately, through effective science communication, the number of children receiving their jabs is on the rise again, so hopefully we get back to a measles-free status soon in the UK. But this is just another example of how a conspiracy theory with no scientific basis can change the state of a nation in just a matter of months or years. It's here that I'm going to draw today's episode to a close. I hope you found this episode thought-provoking to some degree. And to close out, I'd like to bring up the philosophy of Sir Karl Raymond Popper, an Austrian-born British philosopher and social commentator. His most famous statements are regarding scientific methods. Popper rejected the classical inductivist views on scientific method, favouring empirical falsification. This means that instead of accepting a finding based off of correlation and reasoned deductions to draw conclusions, disproving all other possibilities, is far more effective for reducing the correct answer to a scientific question. This is a rather more complex way of putting Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes's approach of process of elimination. It is this scrutiny that every fact we come across should be subject to, be empowered to know more than everyone else. If there's something you don't know, research it, read, watch a documentary and better yourself and those around you in what I shall call intellectual communism. Shared knowledge betters us all. Finally, I'll end in what is becoming a bit of a traditional uh, way of ending this podcast with a quote or two from our giant of the week. Lewis Howard Latimer said, Habit is a powerful means of advancement, and the habit of eternal vigilance and diligence rarely fails to bring a substantial reward. So be aware of things around you and question these things appropriately. The second quote I'd like to share with you today is that we create our future by well-improving present opportunities, however few and small they be. With that thought, I'd like to say thanks for listening and don't forget to send in your questions ahead of the next episode on cancer, where we'll have two guests joining us. Share our podcast if you like what you're hearing and get in touch with us on social media accounts that are all linked in the description down below. With that being said, stay safe out there. Catch you in the next episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.